It's worth knowing what's really going on. This is the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, the Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. You all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. This is Access Atlanta, your weekly look at what's fun, entertaining, and educational in and around Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. Every week, we're here to help you get ready for the weekend and bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people in arts, culture, food, and entertainment. Let's get started with a couple of events that are happening around town this week. With the price of gas soaring, maybe that road trip needs to be postponed, but there are plenty of things to do in Atlanta, probably some you don't even know about. There are plenty of local tours where you can learn about and discover Atlanta anew. Go seek spirits on the Decatur Haunted House Tour, navigate a Korean meal with Soul of the South Tour, or find out about some local eateries on an Inman Park or Pont City Market food tour. Splurge and take a hot air balloon ride once around the city, or see the sights on foot while savoring a cocktail. Get out and see what's in your backyard, or maybe just a few blocks away. We've gathered some of the best local tours in this week's Go Guide section in Friday's Atlanta Journal-Constitution, or you can check out the story on accessatlanta.com. Maxwell is back on tour and coming to Atlanta's State Farm Arena this weekend. The three-time Grammy winner is headlining the night tour on March 19th, supported on his 25-city tour by opening acts Joe and Anthony Hamilton. The night tour is the first major partnership for the Black Promoters Collective, a group of independent veteran black concert promoters and live event producers founded in 2020. It's designed to create equity for black personnel in concert tours and live productions who are often overlooked once massively successful black performers pivot from small venues and into stadiums and arenas that are sponsored by major touring companies. Read our interview with the R&B superstar in this week's Go Guide and on accessatlanta.com. Stay tuned for more events later in the podcast, and after the featured conversation, we'll take a look at what the AJC is bringing you this week, both online and in print. But first, we're going to hear about an Atlanta landmark that's looking to the future. Located in the Briarcliff Plaza Shopping Center, now branded Plaza on Ponce, the Plaza Theater is the only independently owned movie theater remaining inside the perimeter, and the longest continuously operating one of its kind in Atlanta. Christopher Escobar purchased the plaza in 2017 and recently signed a 25-year lease with Asana Partners, who bought the Plaza on Pont Shopping Center five years ago. Despite the societal challenges working against him, the rise of streaming, the pandemic, fancy multiplexes, he sees a pathway to make the plaza even more of a neighborhood magnet, a community hub, and a gathering spot. And he has big plans. 
Rodney Ho spoke with Escobar about those plans and the future of the Plaza Theater for this week's podcast. Welcome, Rodney. How's it going, Shane? Good. So uh, this is pretty fascinating. You know, those of us who've been in Atlanta for a long time are very familiar with the Plaza. It's one of the things that uh, has remained a constant. And uh, yeah, it goes back to the year Gone with the Wind came out. It's that it was back in 1939 that it opened. But back in those days, there were literally a hundred different types of local theaters like that. Every few blocks, there was one because people at the time didn't really drive to a multiplex. Those didn't exist. They were just single theaters and they would rotate movies in and out. And it was just one of many theaters. It wasn't anything special at the time. It tended to run movies months after they were first released, say, you know, at the Fox Theater uh, or the Lowe's down on, you know, the big theaters on Peachtree. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was, you know, it was very successful for decades. Uh, then it went through some hard times in the 60s when, um, you know, there was suburban, suburban flight, uh, white flight back in the day. And then it became like a X-rated movie theater in the mm -hmm. 70s. And right. then George LaFont uh, saved it. Um, and a couple of other owners in between uh, came by and kept it alive. And then along came uh, Christopher Escobar at age. He was just 30 years old in 2017 and he took over. And he has big plans. You know, 25 years means that this 35-year-old man will be 60 years old when the lease is up. So he's fully committed yeah. to the theater. Yeah, yeah, oh, that's great. I mean, it, it's it's really nice to see something, you know, that, that has such historic value get saved because, you know, we all, well, not all of us, but uh, many of us have great memories of the plaza. You know, it, it went through. Oh, yeah, a period where, I, I mean, it goes back to the, you know, RuPaul actually yeah. uh, worked there back in the 80s. <laughs> it, yeah definitely has an interesting history. Um, and Christopher Escobar really cares about history. He's also the executive director of the Atlanta Film Society. And right. he's been doing that for 10 years. So he kind of combined his love for film and his love for theater and is basically doing two jobs right now. And, you know, the Atlanta Film Festival, uh, you know, the annual film festival is going to run there next month. So he's, uh, the timing is all good for him. It's funny, I, I've been talking to the man for a couple of years, you know, when the pandemic began, um, he started a couple of drive-ins. He did one at dad's garage. He did one in the back theater just to keep the place alive. So nice. I, I just called him in February just to check in to see how things were going as this pandemic has dragged on. It was after Omicron. Um, so I basically, um, you know, asked him and he mentioned the 25 year lease and I said, Oh, let me go over and talk to him. And, uh, you know, his, his plans for the place are very ambitious. He's got, you know, he's planning to invest $4 million theater. Um, he's, building like a couple of extra theaters upstairs. And he's got this, you know, idea of creating a rooftop bar space and, and theater upstairs, an outdoor space. Cause everybody in that area is doing rooftop stuff, right? Right, yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, that's great. So, well, is there anything else we should know before uh, we go into this conversation? Oh, no, I mean, he's, he's, he's an interesting guy. I mean, yeah. that type of dedication takes a special human being. Gotta yeah. say that. Yeah. All right. Well, great. Well, let's hear from uh, Christopher Escobar about the Plaza Theater. Thanks, Rodney. All right. Thank you, Jane. Hey, this is Rodney Ho with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I am here with Chris Escobar. He is both the head of the Atlanta Film Society and the owner of the Plaza Theater. And we are here to talk about the Plaza Theater, uh, which has been around uh, for 83 years. It's on Ponce de Leon Avenue. If you haven't been there, can you sort of help people out here, Chris, if they've maybe driven by and maybe haven't thought about it? 
yeah a lot of people will recognize like the majestic or urban outfitters kind of on either end of us but yeah we're right there at that corner of ponce and north island avenue yeah what's the magic of that marquee the marquee seems very special at least yeah, compared well, for, to what we have now for sure i mean it's back when you know a lot of sign it people when businesses took a lot of effort in signage and doing things really kind of special and unique and you know, it's it's seen a number of changes over the last you know near century, um, but it's been there this whole time. It's it's one of the original original pieces uh, in that neighborhood. How did the Plaza Theater survive all these years um, and not get torn down or turned into something else completely? I guess it's really the only surviving theater that still is a movie theater, right? I mean, several of the buildings of the other theaters are still around or they're used like the Fox Theater in kind of different ways. Right. Yeah, I think uh, for, I think it's a combination of, you know, certain people really kind of taking their risk over the years uh, on the plaza and hedging bets on the plaza that other other historic, you know, theaters of its, you know, contemporaries did not see that exactly, particularly as you get out of the 70s. And I think it's a combination of that and luck um, and interest over the area. Um, you know, now, now the area is starting to see a lot of development, but really there hasn't been a whole lot of development from, uh, you know, major construction or anything like that, you know, honestly, in the last four or five decades in that area. Yeah, and so in I that guess way, was 39, also... I guess we can go back in the beginning. It was originally like a second run theater that ran movies that were not the not they weren't out immediately, but usually a few months later they got them. <laughs> yeah, it was what you know, I like to say it's like sort of the original Netflix, you know, it would have been referred to like, for instance, in the, in the Atlanta Constitution, it was listed under neighborhood theaters. And that's where honestly most people saw most of their movies was at the people in the Virginia theaters. Highlands, that little area, like one or two exactly. mile radius. That's people just went over there, right? Exactly. And I'm sure Atlanta had over a hundred of these. And then that's different from say the movie palaces that were on Peachtree, the Fox and the Lowe's Grand. And those were destination Paramount. spots, right? Those exactly. were bigger. Those, were, those were also much bigger. They were, there were several, several thousand seats. And that was a real, I mean, people got really dressed up to go to those. Whereas your neighborhood theater was a comfortable place you'd walk to from home and, and that sort of thing. By the 60s, I guess suburbanization, white flight, it all kind of cost some business over there at uh, Plaza and Plaza almost went down, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so the 60s, it was it was doing okay, but it was in the 70s where things got bad, not just for the Plaza, but that whole area, you know, there was, you know, a lot of folks moving out, there was really not a lot of investment going in that area. And it's also the time when you were really seeing the decline of these, you know, single screen neighborhood theaters around the country and around the metro and so it wasn't it wasn't you know uniquely targeted in that in that regard no, what, so what did they do in the 70s to make to survive yeah so in the 70s <laughs> it did what i like to say a lot of historic theaters did which is like the hospice of of historic theaters which is start showing adult films and burlesque films and things like that that was usually the last stop before closing forever for mm -hmm. for the majority of historic cinemas in 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 our area and around yeah. the country yeah, amazingly, I guess it survived as an X-rated theater for 13 years, which is quite a long time. But what what happened to save that theater from demolition in 1983? Yeah, what happened was George LaFont happened. So he was kind of uh, Atlanta's uh, kind of, you know, jam and treasure in art house programming. And so he really valued showing independent films and foreign films and classic films. And, and was not afraid of owning a, a theater that only had a one or two screens or things like that. And so he bought the theater and converted it to a twin where he converted the balcony, you know, under 1983 standards 
uh, and made a second auditorium, which really allowed him to be able to try and compete with um, the other theaters, you know, in the metro. Uh, and as you start to see the rise of the multiplex, especially that was important. But I guess by the 2000s, the um, Midtown Arts kind of stole its thunder. That was a multiplex right up the street, right? That actually started showing yeah. art films. And the, and the landmark Midtown, what we call the landmark Midtown now, um, it had existed for a few years, but what changed was when Landmark Theaters, the company, you know, there was a lot of, of consolidation and companies buying companies and, and having to divest locations and things like that. And so Landmark Theaters, which is a national art house chain, which shows the same kind of movies that the Plaza was already showing starting in the 80s, purchased that theater and then it, it, it started meaning that the plaza wasn't able to compete, not just it couldn't hold its own, it was literally not allowed to get titles that that location would then claim a geographic monopoly. And so that really started to spell a lot of doom and trouble. And that's why George LaFont was not able to, you know, the formula that had worked for him, he wasn't even allowed to do anymore. And so that's when it started to be difficult. And I guess that's when the Regis came in, right? Uh, they, uh, yeah. So, yeah. So Johnny and Gail Ray uh, bought the theater in 2007. From Ray, I'm sorry. Lafont. I've been saying Reg the whole time. It's Ray. Sorry. Yeah, it is, it is spelled that way. <laughs> I'm mispronouncing yeah, your name. Um, <laughs> and so they bought the theater not because they had, you know, delusions of, of oh, we're going to strike it rich owning a movie theater. They just couldn't stand by and see it close down. And he had been, and LaFont had been waving the white flag for a little while and was, you know, operating with limited hours and, things like that. And so at that point, really the only hope um, was for somebody to come along and buy the theater that wanted to do something else with it and keep it from frankly turning into a Walgreens or something. Yeah, and so and they- Yeah, they came up with some pretty unique programming, right? Ways to sort of keep the place they alive. They did. Well, right? what they, yeah, what they really did was they, they opened the doors to the community. And so when folks wanted to do something that was kind of out of the box and untraditional, they were open to it. And so that's when you saw things like the Silver Stream Spook Show, and Splatter Cinema and Black and Taboo La La and all these things that really come in, in, in a very interesting way actually spoke to the plaza's original history as a, as a kind of a vaudeville cinema where the idea was it was a combination of what's on screen but also what's on stage. Yeah, because there was always a stage there, right? It wasn't just a theater. It was, it was an actual space correct. for people to do something correct. fun in front of the screen. Right. Uh, now, we don't have, I don't have a lot of record yet right now of, of what kind of live programming was happening in the 30s and you know, in, in 39, in the 40s and going into the 50s. But it was always, you know, it was designed and built with, you know, having the stage capacity and the ability to screen. Um, so uh, so and, and when that was part of Gale, the success of Rocky Horror there, right? Because Rocky Horror has it been was, there, yeah. um, for over 20 years, right? The, uh, yeah, yeah. There's lots of theaters who show Rocky Horror, but part of what makes the plaza special is that we have our shadow, we have like a resident shadow cast through the cast of, of LDOD, uh, which which is a let's down on Dixie. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's their full name. Although I think they're starting to reconsider the appropriateness of of having Dixie in the name, and that starts to not. Oh, interesting. Not yeah, I almost forgot about that. That's true. Mm -hmm. um, so, so they're just going by like LDOT right now. But yeah. Right, right. Um, like Weight yeah. Watchers is WW, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. The um. So are they coming back? They're they're they're. Have they set a date? They are. They actually just came back. They had a, their first sold out. Uh, first show was this past Friday, and it was oh, sold out. Um, and, and how often do so they do now. the shows now? Right now, it's every two weeks. Um, okay. And instead of instead of every Friday at midnight, right now it's like every two weeks at like eleven. Uh, so, so the next but, one is um, March eighteenth, right? Is that the next time correct. we're going to do one? Okay, that's correct. Yeah, awesome. And um, so 
so the Rays just kept it going for another, I guess, 10 years, right? Uh, almost. They bought in 2007 and then, and then kept it going until 2013 when then now right. the new threat was the conversion to digital cinema, which was a really expensive upgrade, you know, per screen. And at, and at, and at the time, you know, the theater was still struggling to be able to, you know, make things happen. The only really successful things were those community things, but they weren't often enough to kind of make ends meet. And so they were all now waving the white flag again, kind of going, we need to figure out something. And so, um, and so that's when the Atlanta Film Society got involved. And we really, it was at a time that was pretty- Yeah, you were already running it at the time, right? You had, you started running that, that uh, at age 24, 25? You were 25 when you started running the Atlanta Film Society, right? And kind of resurrected was, that operation. Yeah um yeah that, yeah and it was you know we, we were both in trouble and i and i say we really kind of saved each other we each had something that the other needed and were able to really work together in a really you know out of the box way and it really yeah, yeah for folks who are on this people. podcast who don't know much about the atlanta film society can you give a quick sort of uh 60 second precy of what what that group is and what it means yeah real quick so the atlanta film society is a nonprofit organization it was uh uh, formed in 76 with the launch of the first Atlanta Film Festival in 1977. It, that makes it one of the oldest film organizations in the country and one of the longest running film festivals in the country. It's also Academy Award qualifying. So uh, so uh, films for the short film categories that are trying to compete for the Oscar have to win at a film festival like ours. And in fact, we have a film right now, which is The Dress, that's currently nominated for an Oscar after qualifying for us. And so it's really, it's the it's the you know celebration of cinema. It's where artists meet audience. It's where um, you know new filmmaker can meet veteran filmmaker. Really, it engages the TV and film industry in a way that you know a lot of other events don't. Um, and so it ends up being kind of an important way for folks to be able to further their careers, filmmakers, or be able to just make inroads within the film film and TV industry. So about a decade ago, you didn't even you had never even visited the Plaza Theater when you took over, right? It was bizarre that somehow these two organizations or the, the bill you know they hadn't really crossed paths in any grand degree right you had to sort of force it together <laughs> yeah and and it's bizarre because i was i was i was going to school at georgia state and you know not just down the street basically and had never even been to or heard of the plaza and in many ways honestly that's you know has is sadly although it's changing it's still that's kind yeah. of the case with most people most people and in, in, you know of the almost six million people we have in Metro atlanta most of them have never been to neither the Atlanta Film Festival or the Plaza Theater, although that's cool. changing more, more every day. Awesome. Well, as you were sort of tying these two together, you had Mike Furlinger come in and kind of upgrade the, you know, he came in and saved the Rays, right? He's yet another yeah. person who came along and, and kept that theater alive, right? Exactly. Another person who saw potential, who was willing to take a risk. And what he brought to the table was both the combination of the needed capital, but also the experience in turning theaters around in the modern era that um, that are struggling, but really have that potential and ability. And so we kept working with him and and between what we were able to do and then certainly with what he was bringing to the table, the plaza was able to now start flourishing and, and, and really be able to make ends meet and grow for the first time in probably 20 years, honestly, at that point. So, um, he so yeah, so international headlines. I guess you guys showed the interview that uh, Seth Rogen, uh, James Franco movie that North Korea, I guess, forced a lot of the major um, like the AMCs and the Regal said, we're not going to show this movie because North Korea might do something or whatever. Right. And yeah. And really that whole thing became, so yeah. So the Plaza was the first on the entire planet to announce that it was actually in fact going to be showing that movie after it was thought that it would, you know, see theaters or even the light of day. 
and really what that ended up underlining is you know what what it matters for in, for theaters to be independently controlled and not you know have kind of the really risk averse uh, decisions that are made at a mega conglomerate corporate level. Um, and so this was a theater that was like, you know what? It, it, at this point, the movie it became bigger than that movie. It became about censorship and about you know foreign powers hacking and you know uh, disagreeing with views expressed in our films and interviewing and interfering with freedom of speech. So it became much bigger and more important than the silly, you know, plot in that movie. And so it also became a reflection of, of, of what, what it means for, for censorship and for, you know, the medium that we, you know, and the art form that folks, you know, are inter interact with more than frankly any other for it to, you know, be generally in the hands of just a few companies. And so this, you know, when, when AMC and Regal and the few, the large chains said, oh, we're not showing it or whatever, that eliminated like 80% of all screens around the country. And so, and in Atlanta, it eliminated all but Almost one. everybody, so, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is Access Atlanta. I'm your host, Shane Harrison. We'll continue with our chat with the Plaza Theater's Christopher Escobar after a short break. But first, here's more of our list of things to do around Metro Atlanta. The 1970s gave us some of the greatest live albums in rock and roll. Live at Leeds by The Who, at the Fillmore East by the Allman Brothers Band, Rock of Ages by The Band. In that pantheon of audio verite is Waiting for Columbus by Little Feet, a double album recorded during three nights of Washington, D.C. performances in August 1977. This spring, after some stops and starts, the 21st century version of the band, what co-founder and pianist Bill Payne calls its third act, is performing the entirety of Waiting for Columbus in concert. In Atlanta, that will happen on March 22nd at Symphony Hall. Head to accessatlanta.com to read Bo Emerson's interview with Payne in advance of the Symphony Hall show. Conductor Jonathan Hayward can still see the colors and the brilliant lights. He can still picture where he sat decades removed from his first visit to Atlanta's Symphony Hall to see the orchestra. Hayward was on a school trip, though the exact details are a little fuzzy, and the tunes played that day are lost to memory. But the impression on that Augusta-born, Charleston-bred kid stuck. Hayward, who was appointed chief conductor of the Nordwest Deutsche Philharmonie last year, said that experience solidified his passion for a career in classical music. The conductor returns to Symphony Hall March 24th and 26th for his Atlanta Symphony Orchestra debut, leading the orchestra in a program of Beethoven's Leonore Overture No. 3, Symphony No. 9 by Shostakovich, and the world premiere of Xavier Foley's Soul Bass, an ASO commission. Read our interview with Hayward in the AJC's Living section next week and on accessatlanta.com. This is Access Atlanta from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. The facts matter now more than ever. Get unlimited digital access to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution so you know what's really going on. And you're helping us fulfill our mission to bring you the news that's important to you. Subscribe today at subscribe.ajc.com podcast and your first month of unlimited digital access is just 99 cents. That's subscribe.ajc.com podcast to join the community for just 99 cents. Let's continue our conversation with the Plaza Theater's Christopher Escobar. Well, you uh, in 2017, I guess Mike wanted out, um, but and he had a couple of buyers, but it looked like he, but he ended up taking a chance on you. You didn't have massive amounts of money. You you just had vision and enthusiasm, right? 
<laughs> and hopefully a little business smarts too, right? Yeah, I was, I was lucky enough where, you know, I had been working really closely, really, really closely with the plaza for a number of years now. Had, had, had been able to learn some things from both Johnny and Gail and learn some things from, from Mike and, uh, and was positioned in a way to be able to go, okay, I really could do this and, and do these enhancements and, and not only have confidence in myself, but be able to, ref, you know, reflect that with a few other people who were able to join me in that. And so uh, as a means of, of not only protecting kind of the plaza's place in the community, but also selfishly protect the interest that the film society had in the plaza and really, you know, it sort of would be a threat for some other, you know, who knows who to come and buy it and do who knows what with it. So I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to kind of get the trust and the confidence of a few folks to allow me to purchase it. Yeah, I guess so Mike became kind of your banker and you are still paying him <laughs> off right now, but it looks like you're, it yep. looks like you're, you're moving forward. It's, it's been very impressive. Uh, he said, you're like 70% there. That's good. <laughs> In five years. Yeah. And, and, and really, you know, having the, the biggest thing that the last couple of years has, has proven, which is like, if we can navigate through and, and be resilient through something like this pandemic, which is the first oh, yeah. thing that let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, you, you yeah. were, you said you were on your way in 2020 to make a million dollars year for the first time and things were going great. Um, you'd managed to get good momentum and then this just kind of stopped you in its tracks, right? I mean, you literally had to shut down the main building for month, for, for months, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we were, we were having a huge January and February. March was, was starting to see, I think, people's nervousness. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, those, two, those two months in the beginning of 2020 were, were, were nearing double what we had done a year before, which was already a good month. Um, so yeah, so we were, we were on the right path and then halted um, like the rest of the world. But, you know, what's interesting is, you know, that it's a business that's literally run despite all kinds of challenges it's it's gone through those challenges you know for 80 you know 80 plus years and so that was the first time where it had you know it was it was it was way bigger than that it had to halt and so the nice thing is from a resiliency resiliency standpoint and i like to think in very much of the spirit of atlanta you know was still able to kind of rise up and rise through those challenges but it was only because of the, you know, tremendous outpour of support from the community and from, you know, people who really still believe and love the plaza. And so people- Oh yeah, work. you got a lot of donations, people purchased merch, right? Um, did you have a slogan of any sort? Did you, did you have kind of a save plaza theater type slogan or? We did, we had, yeah, we had a, we had a save the plaza theater uh, kind of campaign, people donating to the foundation, which was uh, important. People were buying vouchers for future movie tickets. Some of those folks are just now starting to use them but uh but yeah we, and, but, and the drive-in concept was what probably really helped you big time that was right? a big was, thing the drive-in the drive-in was big and, and 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 the combination of all these things really bought us time for these bigger relief measures to finally come through from ppp to uh eventually the shuttered venue operators grant and things like that because you know all these all these things you know were encouraging were uplifting were kind of giving us hope but still you know not getting any breaks on any on any bills you know, generally did not add up enough to make ends meet. And so it was really only because of the combination of that with these other relief efforts that we were really able to endure. Yeah, you, you uh, so you've managed, even though things have been up and down, I know you said things felt momentarily normal last July and then Delta mm -hmm. came along and then of course Omicron came along. So it's been kind of this mm -hmm. back and forth, up and down situation, right? And you're, uh, yeah. you know, you're, you're still managing, right? 
<laughs> yeah, and we try and we try and you know create some stability in a world that's otherwise kind of always changing and unstable. You know, there's always kind of back and forth and back and forth. And so we've tried to make sure that the plaza was always the safest possible space that and you know public space that people can go. Um, and and so we've done both visible and less visible things from bipolar ionization in the air system to reducing contact and distancing and all that kind of stuff. But we're now finally where you know, where there's enough, you know, a combination of, of people getting immunity through a variety of ways and the cases are finally down, we've been tracking with what the CDC um, is recommending. And so we're, we're looking forward, we're now this, uh, you know, the expiration of the, of the, of the mask recommendation is going to expire later this month. And so with that, we're going to, we're going to now thaw some of our, our, our policies. So we've oh, been wonderful. the only movie theater that's required proof of either vaccine or recent negative tests that we're going to, uh, we're going to um, suspend that where we've uh, been doing capacity limits. We're going to, we're going to relax on that a little bit. And we've been the only that's theater great. that's been recording masks. This is all so good, good timing because the Atlanta Film Festival is next month. So what, what are the dates uh, this year? April 21st to May 1st. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. Well, the one thing I, you know, that really got me interested in you is that you told me a few weeks ago that you signed a lease, but, and most people sign leases, what, five years, 10 years. How long is this lease that you're talking about? So this is going to be a 20, this is a 25 year lease, which makes it the longest lease in the plaza's near century history. And, and the reason for that isn't, isn't because, Hey, there's never been a time to be in the movie business, but no, it's instead <laughs> because what we're wanting to do is, is take a number of, of ideas uh, that we've had for a long time. And we're, we're really going to transform the theater in really important ways. For one, from a historic preservation and restoration standpoint, the plaza is gonna be bringing back elements that in some cases have been gone for half a century. Um, in other cases, gonna allow us yeah, to- Yeah, you've got it. Like for instance, I guess a ticket booth right at the entrance, right? That's one thing- Yeah, and the bulb lighting underneath, those things have yeah. been got missing for you know well over 50 years. Um, you know, A lot of the Art Deco streamline elements in the interior have largely been missing. Um, as, as there's just been adaptation after adaptation after adaptation. And so we're going to be restoring a lot of that. Um, and, and you've and already added, I, I guess you're working on two extra screens upstairs, right? That, that, that are Yeah, so that's actually finished. the first thing. We're, we're going to be doing this in phases. And so the first thing we're going to be doing is adding, is sort of taking a chapter out of what George LaFont had done and making the, the former balcony into uh, two smaller intimate auditoriums, giving us three screens. And that's going to be pivotal in, in, to be able to really compete in the marketplace and not kind of have our hand tied behind our back. The other reason why the 25-year lease becomes important is, you know, as people may have seen, there's been a number of businesses in that area that have just not been able to keep up with the rising costs of rent. But, you know, our, our own property expenses have, have more than doubled in the last few years since the per property was purchased because it was purchased for a ton of money. Um, and so property taxes skyrocketed and the and the, and the property fees have skyrocketed in, in sure. it, you know, aside from what's happening with rent. And so as a way to create some stability and to create a way to create, uh, you know, to, to reduce any kind of ambiguity or uncertainty, you know, our rent's gonna, gonna, gonna be going up, but at least there's a plan and at least there's an ability for it's us manageable. to- manageable, really yeah, you, you can manage it in a way yeah. that it won't be some unexpected spike. Um, exactly. But all right, the one key thing you told me, which is the coolest thing, is you've got a dream to redo the, the roof. Tell me about the roof. Yeah, so the big, so the big keys in, uh, beyond just the balcony converting and the refresh to the concessions and bar and the bathrooms, 
uh, the biggest thing is being able to add an elevator to the back of the building that creates handicap accessibility and otherwise. But then that also then opens the door to what will be one of the coolest, most transformational things in the plaza's history. And that's a rooftop patio bar and screen. That just sounds so um, cool. And it really is. So the nice thing is it really takes advantage of the fact that, uh, you know, from an elevation standpoint, where the plaza sits is actually higher than most things in its area. And a lot of people don't realize that the auditorium, because you don't see it from the front of the building and you still really wouldn't, the front of the building is only a story high, but the back where the auditorium is, it sits so much further back, it's three stories tall. And so without really, you know, going much higher than the building is already, we're going to be able to put in a space up there that really allows us to um, a, be COVID proof and have a permanent outdoor space so that no matter whatever happens with some of their future pandemic or whatever, we That's have something a upstairs outdoor yeah. space. It also gives us a social space where we can have a screening and a reception upstairs. Um, you know, so the combination of all that really allows us to make the most of what we have to work with. That's so exciting. What's the time frame you think you'll be able to get that all done if, if, the, if the finances all work out? <laughs> Yeah, so if everything goes according to plan, um, we're going to have the balcony auditoriums done in time for the Atlanta Film Festival, actually. Um, and that was the first thing that we permitted. And then the next, we'll be working on the uh, bar, bathrooms, concessions, and that sort of thing. But with any luck, we'll be done with everything by the end of 2023. That's super ambitious. Well, congratulations on that. I mean, what... You know, you're you're thirty, you're thirty-five. Uh, this lease gets you to your sixty. What is it about owning a movie theater that's so important to you? You know, it's 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 in part of owning a movie theater because I I, I love film. It's it's been kind of my my you know life's dedication for the last you know ever since I started becoming an adult and going to Georgia State to you know for undergrad and grad school and study film and pursue filmmaking. But to me, it's also important about preserving history and about you know, being able to have a place that generations can know and, and come to love and share and that we can, you know, bring folks together. Um, it's, it's important that, you know, we don't get so caught up in, in new shiny things and places that, <laughs> that we just end up having no, no common kind of shared history. And I'm not, you know, naturally an Atlantan. I, I like to say I'm an Atlantan by choice. And we, and we moved, uh, we moved here when I was, you know, still a kid, but I've, I've been able to make this place my home and, be able to be a part of the community. And, and I also have a sense of responsibility to preserve that, uh, that history and that and the legacy and sort of communal heritage that we all share and become a part of, rather you were born into it or became a part of it, so. Yeah, that, that's a noble cause. Um, you know, you're not gonna become a multi-billionaire be owning a movie theater. This is really a calling, no. right? This is, this is truly a, a love, a passion project, right? In many ways. And uh, it really is. Yeah. My, my goal is just about making sure that no matter what happens at the plaza is sustainable, it's able, you know, it's able to co compete economically. That's something that I really took a chapter out of my ability to interact with the Fox theater, which has really been a huge kind of blessing and big brother. Yeah, They've way. actually helped you out because they almost went down in the seventies. So I think they have their own foundation, right. That helps out other theaters. It's like, they have, uh, yeah, guess. they have the Fox Theater. They have the Fox Theater Institute. And see, a lot of people don't realize the Fox Theater is a nonprofit to begin with. But yeah, they take some of the excess dollars that they generate and they help historic theaters around Georgia. And it's not just about, hey, let's make the building pretty, but it's also about let's make sure your business practices are, are solid and savvy. Let's make sure that you can use the combination of a, of a gorgeous, well-preserved historic building 
but also that you're running in a way that commercially and economically is sustainable so that those two things can go hand in hand. And so I'm very much subscribed to that philosophy. Um, and it's because of their help that we're able to you know, do things like feasibility studies. And that's actually what this is, uh, is possible as we did a huge historic restoration and re revitalization plan in part because of the, the funds from the Fox to help do that. And so we got a, a great team from Lord Icon Sargent that did the Marquee Club at the Fox. They did the restoration of the, you know, the Gold Dome, the Capitol here. Um, so they've worked with a number and as there's a property out in Augusta, a theater, historic theater they've done as well. So they have, they have a tremendous experience in kind of making sure that you can kind of find that blend of old and new, do the research, dive in, see what was, what's possible um, and make those two things kind of live, um, you know, side by side. That's wonderful. Well, thank you, Chris, um, for doing what you do for that area and for that building. Um, I think we talked a little bit that that building may actually have some ghosts in it, and but they're happy ghosts, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's there. funny because <laughs> we've, we've been very sensitive to that and uh, we've had some investigators out a number of times and yeah. so far the vibes are good. So far the vibes are yeah, good. So that's, I, that's important. I, I, yeah, I'm sure the ghosts are very happy you're there. So. <laughs> <laughs> They're not going to do anything. Well, thank you again, Chris, and uh, good luck. I, I know the Atlanta Film Festival starts in just over a month, and uh, it does. And and then we're going to have uh, more information on on the changes ahead. If folks want to kind of dive in and get a, a deeper sense on our website, plazaatlanta.com. We're also inviting the community to join us in uh, the raising of those funds. More information on our site about that as well. Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Rodney. Thank you. AJC brings you the best of what's happening in and around Atlanta on accessatlanta.com, along with deeper looks at trends in arts and entertainment and compelling looks at lost bits of history. Here's a taste of what you'll find there. Johnny's Hideaway on Roswell Road has been an Atlanta destination for eating, drinking, and dancing since 1979, though not always in that order. That the retro nightclub has survived in ever-changing Buckhead for 43 years is something of a miracle. What's more, it's open seven days and nights a week, with a DJ spinning every evening. Over the years, it's become a repository of the social history of the city. Certainly, the aphorism, if these walls could talk, applies. Find out what keeps this Atlanta classic buzzing into its fifth decade on accessatlanta.com and ajc.com. The spewing of venom online confrontational political discourse, and seemingly irreconcilable divides between people can make you wonder if rage has become the go-to emotion of our time. Michael Brooks, curator of modern and contemporary art for the High Museum of Art, has assembled a kind of corrective to the feeling that society has become more familiar with confrontation than with kindness. His upcoming exhibition, What is Left Unspoken Love, is the curatorial equivalent of a daisy in a gun barrel, something lovely and tender countering all that coiled fury. Rooks has been working on this ambitious group show longer than any other exhibition in his career, longer than he's been at the High, where he came on board in 2009. What is Left Unspoken Love opens March 25th and runs through August 14th. Read our interview with Brooks and some of the artists in the show in this Sunday's Living and Arts section in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and find it online at accessatlanta.com and ajc.com. If you're listening to this podcast on ajc.com, please take a moment to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast so you'll never miss an episode. For more things to do in and around Atlanta, 
go to accessatlanta.com and ajc.com. The podcast is edited by Tyson Horn. The theme music is by Bo Emerson and Billy Ewan. And I'm your host and the AJC's arts and entertainment editor, Shane Harrison. Join us next week for more Access Atlanta. Thank you.